He said, figure out what you want to say on your deathbed and work backwards from there. Mm. And if your life today is in alignment with what you want to say on your last days on earth, then don't freak out. Just keep on keeping on. If you're not in alignment, you got to start getting yourself in alignment. Hey folks, I just had the pleasure of sitting down with one of my all-time heroes, John Wood from the charity Room to Read. Many years ago, seven, eight years ago, I read one of his books. It changed my life. The direction of my life was heading somewhere that I wasn't that happy with. And after reading his book, being fully inspired changed my life to, to go in a direction where now uh, Positive and I have built over 16 schools. We're in our 17th school right now. Today, I had a chance to sit down with him for a hour and have a chat on the podcast all about Room to Read, where it's been, where it is, where it's going to go, and what John is doing now in his life. What an inspirational man, what an inspirational human on this planet. He will really change the world, and I had so much fun listening to him. I hope you enjoy this conversation with John Wood. John Wood, thanks for joining me on the podcast. My pleasure. Good to see you. It's awesome to see you again, and uh, it's been an interesting world or interesting time this year in the world. Yeah, yeah. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm just hoping on the vaccine front we have reasons to be optimistic. I'm certainly, as an American, optimistic about the election, uh, optimistic on the Pfizer news. So let's hope that optimism can give us some, give us a better conclusion to 2020 than any of us are expecting. Absolutely, has uh, has sending positive vibe vibes your way all the way from Australia. So, uh, um, you know, hey, listen, I don't know if we've had this chat before, you know, for the listeners right now, you know, John Wood, founder of the the Room to Read charity um, around the world, doing amazing things. But uh, I wanted to maybe share this story and, and maybe I've shared it with you before, but, you know, you're part of your epiphany and your world, you know, once I um, got to know you through your book and then personally over the years was that moment you had in Nepal where, you know, Microsoft maybe overworked, underpaid. Maybe I've got better things to do with my life, and um, you know that small room in in Nepal somewhere, and uh, a major change in your life and epiphany sort of sent you in a new direction, which which is incredible. So we'll talk about that a little bit later on. But I wanted to share maybe a story that you might not know about me. Um, I read your book, Changing Microsoft to to uh, you know um, or leaving Microsoft to change the world, and um, uh, I was in a bit of a, a very low point at my life. I was walking through an, uh, an airport in Australia, Adelaide, Adelaide Airport. You might have flown through it. Well, hopefully you haven't thrown, flown through it, but if you have, then <laughs> condolences. <Yeah>, Many <I> <laughs> times. No, Adelaide's a good spot. But uh, I, I was having uh, a moment in my life where I was, I was quite lost in my career and my life. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd gone down um, a, a track which I think I'd sort of exchanged a lot of money for – uh, a big part of my soul, and I saw this book on the shelf. It literally jumped off the shelf when I was walking through the airport in the news agency, leaving Microsoft to change the world. And I read that book on the way from Brisbane to Adelaide. And uh, and John, I, I just wanted to let you know that that actually changed my life. That moment in my life reading your book, and it was close mm. to 10 years ago now, was an absolute pivotal moment in my life. So I want to start out the, the conversation today by saying thank you. It absolutely pivoted my life in a direction and I feel like, uh, um, you know, I want to say thank you right up front for that one. I can tell you that uh, I was in a pretty 
lost place, I felt, and um, your words landed and I felt found for the first time in over a decade, mate. So thank oh, you. That's great. That's, that's <laughs> great to hear. Well, yeah. I'll tell you I'll tell you a quick story. I was I was at a, a room to read fundraising event in, in Tokyo about a year after the book had come out. And the book thankfully had become a bestseller in in the Japanese language version. And I met this young kid. He said, you know, Woodson, Woodson, it's nice to meet you. Your book changed my life. I said, really? He said, yes, I was working in a big Japanese company and I read your book and it made me recognize there are better things in life. And so I quit my job. And um, I said, he said, that was two years ago. And I said, wow, that's interesting. Thanks for telling me. And I hope, I hope your life's worked out since then. And he said, no, no, I am still unemployed. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, you read my book, you quit your job and now you've been unemployed for two years. And, and he said, no, no, it's okay. He said, I am, I am very happy now. He's like, I'm much happier with where I am. So happiness is more important than money. But whenever somebody tells me that, that my book changed their life, <laughs> I kind of get a little bit worried um, about, well, gosh, what, well, I, I hope that it changed your life for the better, not for the worse. Well, uh, from my point of view, it did change my life for the better, John, for sure. And um, the relationship that uh, ensued after that with um, uh, you guys and, and Room to Read um, has been absolutely amazing since so we've had the absolute honor to be able to you know help build 16 schools with you guys and we're on our 17th right now and amazing uh, yeah and for us you know 6,000 kids going to school every day like I just I just I'm just so grateful for that opportunity because one of my major passions when I started my own business I wanted to build my own school in Australia that was that was a just a driving internal fire goal and I felt quite despondent because the red tape in Australia was absolutely very hard to to get over and um, and then I went down the corporate path which was you know positive real estate myself and Sam and Shay's our businesses um, was going very well but I'd felt you know commercially I was I was uh, chasing something that um, you know um, didn't have the meaning for me and, and building the schools has really brought together for me coming back to did it work out John it did it did work out it yeah. this, this nice balance and marriage back to my my professional entrepreneurial world and the world of giving back in a way that really meant something to me so so thank you um, and uh, and uh, uh, maybe that's where we could start this conversation today because your epiphany um, came from um, a corporate world, if you could maybe give us like five minutes for the listeners today about how this all came about, because I'm going to talk about some stats in a minute, but where it started was extraordinary. Okay, cool. Well, for the sake of your, uh, your listeners, I'll try to keep it to uh, to about three minutes. But, um, you know, like you, Jason, walking, walking through the airport in Brisbane and getting on that flight and kind of feeling like everything was not right with your life. I kind of felt that way in 1998. I was living, I mean, I, I had a great life. I lived in Sydney. I worked for Microsoft. I was director of marketing for Microsoft Australia. I was making good money, having a good time. But it just didn't really feel like my life was, was what I wanted it to be. I'm not really quite sure why, but I went off to Nepal uh, to do the Annapurna circuit. And it's something I've been dying to do for a long time. It's this 18-day trek uh, in this remote part of Nepal along the border of Tibet. And what you're promised is no newspapers, no communications, no vehicles, just nothing. Just you and your backpack, 18 days, trekking to a, a pass that's about almost 18,000 feet in elevation. And I was like, very excited for that. And I, start, I set off on this 18-day trek. I was going by myself, so I'd have some solitude, some time to think about life. And on the second day, 
um, of my trek, I met this gentleman named Pasupati Niapani. And he was just drinking tea. The Nepalese these things called bati. So it's a tea house. That's so the I'm butter tea. That's uh, that butter yeah. tea, is it? That the yak butter tea? Oh no, actually, sorry. It's a, called a bati, which means a tea house, actually. Uh -huh. Uh, and um, I was staying in this, it's like kind of a, just a ramshackle little place. Local people, if you give them $5, you can lay your sleeping bag down for the night and, and get a get a plate of egg fried rice in the morning. And I started talking to this guy, Pasupati, and he said, well, I am the district resource officer for this part of Nepal for the education department. And he said, but I have no resources. Um, but would you like, would you like to come see the local school? I'm going to the local school today. And I got excited. I was a, a huge like you know book nerd when I was a kid. I loved school and I thought this is a chance to see the real Nepal, yeah. not the tourist version of Nepal. So Pasupati and I set off. We walked about two and a half hours up these very, very steep hills. And we got to this little village called Bahundanda, which is where this his one of his schools was. And like many schools in the poorest parts of the world, it was simultaneously hopeful and rather sad. The hopeful bit was that 400 students were showing up every day, eager to learn, their parents wanted them to learn, but the school was just completely dilapidated, dirt floors, uh, no ventilation, no natural lighting, um, you know, 80 kids crammed into a room that should have held no more than 20 kids. And then they went and they said, well, let's let's go see the library. And I thought, okay, the library, that'll be the hopeful, optimistic part of the tour. You know, libraries are always hopeful. And we walked into this just ramshackle, dirty, uh, dusty room with no light. They had bookshelves, but they had no books. And I said to the headmaster, how is it you're missing something as important as books in your library of 400 students? And he said something that would change my life forever. He said, well, in Nepal, we are too poor to afford education, but until we have education, we'll always remain poor. Mm. And that struck me as really the kind of the topic sentence of, of why does poverty exist? As you know, Nick Kristoff, the New York Times writer, one of my favorite writers and a friend uh, has said, talent is universal, opportunity is not. And I just thought to myself, this is so sad that 400 kids will grow up not having the pleasure of reading books. There'll be one more generation uh, to be illiterate. Nepal has one of the highest illiteracy rates in the world. Uh, at least wow. it did 20 years ago before we got yeah. started with our work. And so the headmaster, like me, was an action-oriented optimist. He gave me a homework assignment. He said, perhaps, sir, you will someday come back with books. And that was a sentence that ultimately would change my life. It would actually ultimately cost me a lot of money because um, <laughs> it led to me making this, this decision to reject my corporate career. But that simple statement, perhaps, sir, you will someday come back with books. Yeah, and that's so powerful. And and at that point, uh, and if anyone's sort of listening on and they want to hear the rest of the story, I, I suggest you grab the book. It's an amazing book, changed my life. And I think for most people, uh, it'll change theirs as well in one way, shape or form. But since that point, you know, since and that was around the 2000s, you know, 14 million children, you know, benefit from the Room to Read programs, you know, 37,000 schools, 26 million books distributed, 8 million checked out by children each year. You guys are the largest producer of locally printed books in the world or local language children's books in the world. Yeah. Um, uh, more than 56,000 girls supported going to school. Did you ever think, like, I mean, those numbers when you read them out loud are just amazing. That's just unbelievable. Did you ever think at that point, like, was there even even an inkling, like, <laughs> to get to here? And I and I think, like, for from what I can tell, anyway, for me, we're just getting started together, John. We're gonna we're gonna do this forever, you know. Um, 
until it until we changed education everywhere in the world. Like you know, what, what did you ever think it'd get this big? Yes and no. Uh, you know, if you told me twenty years ago, I would bet actually that, and I can update you in the numbers a little bit. We're actually going to reach our twenty million student by the end of this year. Wow! Uh, and it's kind of cool because twenty twenty is our twenty year anniversary. So if, if we look at 2020 as a year of coronavirus and horrible things happening, 2020 has had some very negative things. But for me personally, looking at the thing that Room to Read has done, and I always try to emphasize it is a team sport. Yeah, uh, It's all of us together in it. It's all the employees, the board members, the supporters like you in positive real estate. It's just everybody's just come together in a way I never could have dreamed possible. Uh, and so in the beginning, it was, you know, myself, my co-founders, a couple of yaks, a couple of donkeys. Uh, you know, schlepping donated English language books up the up the side of a mountain. And but we said in the beginning, my co-founders, Aaron, Aaron and Dinesh and I, uh, we said in the beginning, we want to reach at least 10 million children um, by the year 2020. I had read Good to Great by Jim Collins multiple times, one of my yeah, favorite one of yeah. authors. Um, they talk about the the BHAG, the B-H-A-G, the big, hairy, audacious goal, oh, yeah. right? And so I nailed my proclamation to the church door and said, we're not going to be one, we're not going to be a little charity. We're not going to be a little um, group doing one-offs. One we're going to try to go big on this. We're going to try to get all the major money centers of the world, be it Sydney or Tokyo or Hong Kong or Singapore, or New York City or Zurich, to start fundraising chapters. And we'll do the Robin Hood thing. We, we will raise money in rich countries. We'll deploy money in low-income countries where the dollar goes so much further. Anybody who's backpacked through Cambodia knows that the dollar, whether it's an Aussie one or an American one, goes so far. Yeah. And we perfected a model under which we could help a young woman go to school for a year in the Room to Read program and have life skills courses after school so she would learn all the life skills she needs to succeed as a young adult. And it was $300 US per girl per year. Um, we could, we in the beginning said we can set up a, a rural library for as low as about seven thousand U.S. dollars, and reach four hundred kids. And we would put a plaque on that library. So whether it be Positive Real Estate or Salesforce or Goldman Sachs or a wealthy family who wants to honor Granny on her ninetieth birthday, would be able to have that direct link to be able to have a knowledge that I didn't just give money to a charity. Now I have no idea where the money went. I don't know yeah. if they spent that money on first class airfare or or God knows what, we said, we're going to create a direct causal link between what you donate or invest in Room to Read and what we produce. And so I think we got much larger than we expected, much more quickly than we expected, partly because of that power of that model. Like what you're saying, Jason, when you're able to say, we've affected kids in 16 different communities, we can name the communities, we've seen pictures. That was one of the keys to Room to Read. If don't, let, don't make people guess where their money went, show them the direct result. And then ideally, they tell two friends who tell two friends who tell two friends. And that's how, you know, what does blow me away is when you, the number you threw out there, we wanted to be the Andrew Carnegie of the developing world. Andrew Carnegie, one of the, you know, capitalist robber barons who tried to make good at the end of his life was my inspiration in the sense that he helped develop 2,500 libraries across the UK, Canada, and the US late in his life. Yeah. When I looked at it, I said, "Who?" when I was debating whether I should quit Microsoft or not, I asked myself and did research, is there an Andrew Carnegie of the developing world? Has anybody done for the developing world what Carnegie did in his day for the US and the UK and Canada? And the answer was no. 
And I thought, this is, this is stupid. Like, it's the best model ever to be able to say, if kids can learn to read, that's their ticket to a brighter future. It's their path out of poverty. Yet nobody's Carnegieized the developing world. So we said 2,500 is at our, our minimum of what we want to do. And we're now at 38,000 communities that have room to read libraries. So we've flown way past Carnegie. <laughs> at one point, we were opening libraries faster than Starbucks was opening outlets at that same point of their life cycle. And that's the way we looked at it. We, we said, if we're going to do this, let's go big. Go big or go home. Yeah. And and uh, I'm assuming part of your uh, classical training in, in, in a, a corporate behemoth such as Microsoft would have been very good training ground for that type of approach to, to what you are rolling out, you know, um, you know, the yeah. high, high data and, and, you know, good focus and team play. Yeah, exactly. And I think one of the things that, that differentiated Room from Read from the beginning was that we said, let's not treat this as a charity. Let's run this like a business. We said, we said the heart of Mother Teresa, but the scalability of Starbucks. Yeah. And so it, it impacted how we recruited not just employees, but also how we recruited partners. So we wanted to really partner with businesses. So just a couple of quick examples. My co-founder, Erin Ganju, who's amazing, she became the second generation CEO after I was the first generation CEO, was ex-Goldman Sachs, ex-Unilever. Uh, our third generation CEO, Gita Morali, um, had cut her teeth at Chiron, working in biotech. Uh, our corporate partners, um, you know, certainly Atlassian. I met, I met Scott and Mike when Atlassian was this, this, this very small, unknown company. And they bet big on Room to Read from the very beginning. Yeah. Uh, we nurtured that relationship. We've had a you know, 12, 13-year relationship with Atlassian. And that's the kind of thing we wanted to do is say, let's partner with the business community. A lot of charities treat business as the enemy. They, treat, they demonize rich people. They treat capitalism as a horrible system. What we said is, we're, we're not going to overthrow the world here. I'm not Bernie Sanders. What we want to do <laughs> is basically partner with wealthy individuals, partner with entrepreneurs, partner with the major banks, and say, all in together, we can get so much more done. There's an old adage in Africa, if you want to travel fast, travel alone. If you want to travel far, travel together. Together, yeah. Pow powerful story. And, and certainly, that is, uh, that is at the heart of what we love about working with you guys is that visibility, that capacity, you know, the, the teamwork all the way from front to back is, is inspirational for uh, all of our clients all the way through to our team and everyone sees it and loves it and, and uh, is engaged with it really nicely, which is, uh, which is amazing. So I just want to uh, uh, just maybe talk about just quickly, you mentioned there before, and one of the stats was, you know, uh, 56, um, you know, thousand girls, um, you know, going to, going to school or, or maybe if it's even more now um, uh, since you've updated the latest stats and stuff like that, you know, could you just talk to a few of the listeners today about the power of women being educated? Because it was one of the things actually um, for me, I was very passionate about young men being educated in Australia. I, I feel the, the education system in Australia wasn't so great for me. And it's kind of like, I feel like um, a, uh, white privilege talking right now it, when we're talking about, you know, uh, uh, somewhere else in the world compared to me in Australia getting free education. But the reality is for many countries around the world, change will happen when we educate the, the women in those countries yeah. um, as a priority. Yeah. yeah. Very definitely. So just the update is by the end of this year, we'll have over 100,000 young women That's uh, in the girls education program. And if people want to learn more about that, www.roomtoread.org is our website. It's got great information on both the literacy program, 
uh, which is obviously the umbrella under which our libraries fall, and then the girls' education program. Awesome. And we really at Learn to Read, we're not either or, we're both. We try to help both boys and girls. I, I would, as a former boy myself, I would never <laughs> want to be perceived as being anti-boy. Um, but the reality is that two-thirds of those out of school in, the, in low-income countries and two-thirds of those who are illiterate are girls and women. And we know from human history, if you don't change that situation, you don't change society. An educated woman is going to educate her children, her grandchildren. Um, it's very, very clear. Like I'm the product. Of, I had an educated grandmother who read to me, and an educated mother who read to me, and an educated older sister who read to me. So I'm the product of three very strong women. And I am who I am today, partly because of that lottery of life that I happen to have been born um, to an educated mother. Now, I think most of your listeners already know these things, so I'll ask for their indulgence if I tell people something you don't, they don't already know. But the benefits of educating women are very, very clear. First of all, for every year a young woman goes to school beyond the norm, her eventual salary will be between 15 and 25% higher. So if a young woman gets six extra years of education, her income may double, it may triple. It's definitely going to be higher. Wow. Now, she's so got more money. That's good. Then what? We know that educated women spend about 90% of marginal every marginal dollar they make on their family. They spend money on food, clothing, shelter, medicine, education. We men are not quite as enlightened on how we spend the marginal dollar. Um, here in Hong Kong on a Friday night, you can go to Lang Kwai Fung if you want evidence of that. So <laughs> women are going to put the money into where it needs to go, into the family. Educated women marry later. They have fewer children. So if we're worried about population exploding from 7x billion to 9 billion, guess where those kids are going to be born? They're going to be born in the countries that have the lowest rates of female education. Uh, places like Afghanistan, places like certain parts of Pakistan, certain parts of, of, of sub-Saharan Africa where education rates for girls and women are low. So if you solve this problem, you solve so many other problems. It's like the old quote from um, Archidemes. Give me a lever long enough and I can move the earth. Yes, to yes. me, that lever is education for young women. And now if someone's bought in on that and says, okay, that's great. Yeah, educate young women. But gosh, how can you afford to have 100,000 women in your program today? How can you afford to get that number higher, let's say one day to a million? Again, I'm not, a I'm not here to be a salesperson, but I will remind people it's 300 US dollars per girl per year to change a life forever. Uh, when I first pitched Don Valentine, the legendary founder of Sequoia Capital in Silicon Valley on this, he was skeptical because he because he had not invested philanthropically outside the United States. When I said this to him, he said, I'll make a major commitment. I'll make a multi-year commitment because if it's $300 per girl per year, he said, that's the biggest no-brainer investment I've ever heard of. And this is a guy who was an early investor in Google and a few other you know successful companies. Yeah, great feedback for uh, for that type of stuff. And and the way you've put it together, you know, and I know there's um, transparency and visibility from the room to read um, um, website and all uh, manner of other places where you guys even at, at points were having competitions who could you know get the the resources to the communities with the least amount of what would be called wastage of the dollar you know trying to get 98% of the dollar there or 96% of the dollar there and, and compete like you said on the back of yaks instead of cars and bicycles <laughs> and so on so it's um it's it dead right it's a no-brainer for sure yeah, no, and the financial efficiency definitely was something we really cared a lot about. I, I uh, people will think that I'm kind of a nerd, but I'm, I did my CPA, you know, was a CPA, did my master's degree in finance, and worked at Deloitte as my first job out of college. And from the very beginning, the founding team took though that kind of that boring stuff, if you will, very seriously to say 
let's not spend a lot of money on overhead. Let's yeah. not spend a lot of money on fundraising. Let's not be one of those charities that's putting stuff in your mailbox every three weeks, begging for more money. When I started out, my friend Chris Jones said he was really annoyed with his local national public radio NPR station because he said every time he felt like he gave them $100, he felt like they spent they spent his $100 asking for the next $100 with all these leaflets and brochures and whatever. And so we said, let's keep the overhead low. And so our fundraising chapters became a big part of that. I know you all have come along. You're one of the more raucous tables um, <laughs> every year at our Sydney Gala, and that's a massive understatement. Um, but that event is run by volunteers. That yeah. event actually has the wine trade in Australia um, donating the wine so we keep our costs low. I fly in for that event on donated frequent flyer miles. The last five years, Qantas has actually sponsored my ticket to come to Sydney as their way to salute Room to Read's quest to keep the, 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 the operations efficient. And if people want to know more, um, Charity, Na Charity Navigator is kind of the rating agency for charities. Yes. We've received their four-star highest ranking, um, I believe it's the last 12 or 13 years in a row, uh, which a very, very minuscule percentage of charities can claim that decade-long track record. Uh, we even had, you know, we had a banker at Goldman Sachs once give me 3 million frequent flyer miles. He said, the last thing I wanna do is travel more, use them. We had hotel groups like Hilton and Rosewood and Swire donate room nights. So as we travel, we keep our costs low by not paying for the hotel. So you know, a, a hundred or a thousand little things like that over time can literally add up to millions of dollars you're spending on the kids rather than on fundraising. Absolutely. And um, the uh, the idea that, um, you know, there's other ways people can contribute as well is, is even more powerful as part of the whole uh, ecosystem and infrastructure of the Room to Read charity. So, you know, so not necessarily cash directly, but frequent fly points and other things, wine and room nights and all sorts of things. So I love, I love yeah. that. We even, we, we even have the team at Atlassian writing code for us. So when they, when they do <laughs> one of their hackathons, they allow Chantal Lewis and the local Room to Read Australia team to tell them what IT problems are we having? We got, we got some of the brightest brains in IT at Atlassian helping us by writing the code, writing our apps to helping us with whatever, whatever IT needs we have. So it's just, everybody can do something. I mean, no one person is ever going to solve this problem with 770 million illiterate people in the world, but collectively as a massive major team, uh, we can do so much. And we're very happy. I know, I know you have listeners from all over the world, but I, I know a lot of them are also in Australia and we're really happy. You know, we just had a big dinner in Adelaide last month for our Adelaide support base. Uh, we've got supporters in Melbourne and Perth. We've got a big chapter in Sydney, one in Brisbane. So it's really been great for us as a former resident of Australia uh, you guys have given me a lot of reasons to come back to Australia on a frequent basis because Australia, when it comes to room to read success, has punched well above its weight. Uh, I know Australia does that in sports. Australia, thankfully, <laughs> also does that in education through room to read. Yeah, and we love having you. We love having you, John. Uh, I'm looking forward to catching up with you in in person again uh, sometime soon, which would be uh, which will be awesome. But the the issue for the for the 2020 has been COVID, and I know that um, that has had quite a significant issue in the the world of schooling around the world. Um, you know, not only in developed countries but undeveloped countries as well. Could you give us a little update on that? Though I know there was quite a you know quite an impact when it came to you know children going to school, and and you know how did you guys how have you guys been dealing with that uh, across um, all of the schools at Room to Read? Yeah, I, I'm by no means the expert in that area because I don't I don't make any programmatic decisions. We've yeah. got really people 
15 times smarter than me making those decisions. So hopefully I can do justice to describe what they've been able to do. They, the team moved very rapidly when schools began to get locked down. The first thing they had to do is they had to do is to figure out what technology do families actually have in their homes? Because when these families are poor, it's not like you're going to say, well, grab your iPad kids and, and come into a Zoom lesson with your teacher on that incredibly high bandwidth line you have in rural Laos. So, I mean, the things we might do in Hong Kong or Scarsdale, New York or Sydney or Melbourne, we can't do in, in Nepal, for example. So the mm -hmm. first thing is what kind of technology do people have? Quite often it's uh, rudimentary cell phones. So for example, in our girls education program, our team just basically started texting every single girl in the program to say, where are you? Are you okay? Is your family safe? Does your family have needs? Let's check in on you on that and your well-being, both your health, health and your and your mental well-being. Then let's do some mentorship using using text messaging, using voice apps, whatever it might be. Let's still teach, let's still teach the life skills classes. Let's still work with the young women. Yeah. Uh, maybe it has to be over a text message. Maybe in, in Vietnam it can be over a group chat. Um, and then television and radio have actually played a part. Our teams in places like India and Rwanda worked with the governments to say, okay. What do these kids who are who are stuck at home, who can't go to school, what do they have? Quite often, they, they have radio and they have TV. And so our teams put together um, radio hours, television hours, where we'd like work with kids, would read to them, would encourage them if they had their school books, to open their school books. And I, I get, our team in Rwanda sent this adorable photo of these two young brothers. They're about, about age eight and six. And they were told that tomorrow morning is the first room to read uh, radio uh, program uh, that we're going to be re reading on the radio. And these kids, even though they were home when they woke up, much to their mother's surprise, they put on their school uniforms to listen in the radio program. They were so excited. Um, so it's those kind of things. It's also in many cases, we've actually have, have had students um, during the summer holiday would actually take books out of the libraries, the room to read libraries, and they would actually set up home libraries. So like the little eight or nine year old girl actually sets up her own little home library and she encourages her neighbors to come in and, and, and check books out. So there's still been some circulation of books. It's not as much as we would like, but in the world of COVID, there's no perfect solution. What I, what I would say the Room to Read teams have done an amazing job of moving quickly, working with the, lo the local governments and the local communities to try to find solutions. And in many cases, using uh, what we'd call kind of the appropriate technology, the level that, that exists and is ubiquitous is the level we need to be at. We, we could design the best Zoom course ever that required something that was high bandwidth, but it wouldn't benefit anybody. Yeah, yeah, being able to pivot that quickly um, and uh, think that through, uh, again, probably another testament to the people that are in your team and uh, joined, the, joined the, the charity over the years, you know, being able to be flexible and, and, uh, and, and really solve on the flow because, you know, the, the momentum is huge for... Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think part of the reason that they're able to do that is because part, a key part of our model has always been local empowerment. So when Roomery got started, I was always uh, amazed and somewhat depressed when I went through places like Cambodia that it seemed like every big NGO was being run by somebody who was not Cambodian. Mm. Uh, it was run by someone who was American or Danish or Swedish or whatever. And we said early on, Aaron and Dinesh, my co-founders, and I said, let's have 100% of our employees be local. Uh, strong Cambodians in Cambodia, strong Vietnamese in Vietnam. They speak the local language. They understand how to work with the governments. 
They're not going to come in on a two-year expat contract and then disappear. Yeah. And so one of the reasons we, we've been able to pit move quickly, whether it be, as you mentioned earlier, our local language publishing program, which I'd love to be able to talk about a little bit if time allows, right. through to our COVID response, it's just been the fact that we have strong local teams who are empowered to make decisions and to move quickly. And I don't think that would happen if we were being run, um, if every operation locally was being run by someone who was not actually from that country originally. Yeah, and that and that was a strong, powerful message for for me also in, in the beginning was that um, I loved the idea that you said, "Hey, listen, we're 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 very happy you're supporting the construction of this school, but you're not you're not invited to come over and build it. It's it's the community's job to do that." I loved I loved that idea because like like you communicated, it was like the the community has to you know, own and, and, and feel they've, they've created that themselves and look after it into the future. Um, and like you said, it's like this co-investment in this resource for the community that they take ownership of and be proud of. And it's not, you know, for want of a better description, you know, some privileged people from, from the first world country coming over and feeling good about helping someone, you know, and then leaving. Exactly. In fact, when we got Rune Reed started, uh, Dinesh Shrusta, our co-founder in Nepal, uh, had said he really was saddened when the number of times he saw people coming to Nepal from overseas and they were like, step aside, local people, we're going to build you a school or step aside, local people, we're going to build you a bridge. Uh, and Dinesh said to us, you know, we do not want to be treated as passive aid recipients. If the community needs to have a school built, that community is willing to donate the labor. But what they often need is the they need the money for the bricks and mortar or they need the books and the shelves and the desks for this for the for the libraries. Or they need that they need the training of the teachers. But the last thing we need is people coming over here and saying, "No, we're gonna we're gonna build Thing X for you. Thing X is a school or a library or an addition to a school." Yeah. So we said, "Let's have this model be one of local empowerment." And then what Dinesh did with the communities in Nepal is he said, "This is not a free gift from overseas. You as a community have to co-invest." So the village development committee, the district development committee, that that micro level of government might put some money in, um, families might donate labor. So if let's say, for example, they were putting in a room to read library, uh, those families would volunteer to build the shelves or to paint the walls. I met, I met a, a businessman in rural Sri Lanka who had bragged to me that he had actually paid for 100 pounds of cement because he said, I've got some money, my business is doing well. And when the headmistress of the school came to me and said, I want you to contribute, I said, I'll contribute, what would you like? Hundred pounds of cement, great. The guy next to him, I'm talking to. I said, "Did you did you buy cement?" He said, "No, I am poor, but my wife and I are here, and we are painting the walls of this school." So it's really, I think, for room to read. We've always been into that idea. Um, Chris Matupi, our first country director for South Africa, used to tell communities there are two types of help: there's self help, and there's help from others. And you do not deserve help from others until you've proven that you've maxed out the self help element show people that you're willing to work for it, you're willing to sacrifice, and then people from outside our country will then be able to come in and help us with the financial resources we need. Yeah, certainly. And then, and also, you know, I've heard the argument either locally in Australia or abroad often that, you know, something that that is given to someone who doesn't go through the process of creating it or earning it themselves often is not appreciated or valued in, in, you know, in a certain way. So, you know, um, I think maybe that yeah. speaks speaks to the psychology also. There's there's an old adage that I that I wrote in uh, leaving Microsoft to change the world that I don't know who originally said it, 
but uh, they said in the entire history of the world, nobody has ever washed a rental car, right? If you don't feel that sense of ownership, you don't take care of it. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> so yeah, I'd, I'd love to. I'd love to hear you uh, talk about producing books in in local languages. I mean, you can see behind me, you know, books have impacted my life. I I, I love books. I've I've read I've, I've read, you know. Uh, amazing amount of books over over my life even uh, as a young young person and you know one of the things that that struck me in the conversations which um which you've helped enlighten me in many ways uh is that you know local books local kids books in their own local languages with their own local tales were, were not being printed it was like mickey mouse you know given to the kids in africa and you know um i, I think that's yeah. amazing yeah, definitely. We, when we started out, we were, uh, you know, we were a little bit naive, or maybe you saw say I was a little bit naive because I thought donating English language books to schools was was a good start, um, but it wasn't it wasn't what the biggest need was. The biggest need was books in the mother tongue, and we're very data driven at Room to Read. So we did surveys early in our life, and we actually went out and asked the little we asked the little people, "What do you think of us?" Right? <laughs> Nobody's more honest. Than an eight-year-old boy, right? <laughs> They're going to so tell you exactly what you And so we, we asked the kids in, in Nepal and Vietnam, what would what would cause you to use the library more often? And gave them multiple choice, and they could check as many of the boxes as they wanted, longer hours, open at night, open on weekends, you know, friendlier librarian, whatever it was. The number one answer was more books in Nepalese and or, or more books in Vietnamese. And that sounds like a bit of a no-brainer. Of course, kids want books in their mother tongue. But the problem is that the for-profit publishers do not publish books in languages spoken by poor people. A family living in a dollar a day or $2 a day cannot afford a luxury like children's books, yet yeah. 2 billion people live on $2 a day. So there's a huge part of your problem of, of poverty right there is that kids don't have books in their mother tongue. So we said, okay, we have a GSD, get shit done mentality, no excuses. We're going to become a publisher because if the four private publishers are not doing it, we can't just simply whinge and say, oh, well, game over. We say, great, let's 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 become publishers. So, again, local empowerment played a role. We said we're not going to take Pippi Longstocking or Heidi and translate it into Khmer, Lao, Vietnamese, Nepalese, Sinhalese, et cetera. Let's create original content. Let's go find the J.K. Rowling of Vietnam. Let's go find the Dr. Seuss of Nepal. Let's go find the Tintin of Tanzania and find local authors and local artists who can create, illustrate, beautiful, colorful, culturally appropriate children's books. Now, some of the experts told us we were crazy. We wouldn't find that talent. And I just thought about all the times I've been in markets in different parts of the world and saw all the beautiful handicrafts, all the beautiful paintings, all the beautiful artwork, the, the animals people have carved. I thought, man, there's so much creativity in these parts of the world. Why can't that creativity be channeled yeah. into producing local language children's books? Now, that's a fun idea when you're in the ivory tower, which of course I was in the ivory tower as the founder. Um, but what was interesting was our teams in Vietnam, our team in Cambodia, our team in Nepal, were overwhelmed with the number of authors and artists locally who said, where have you been all my life? I've been waiting for this moment. Wow. And next thing we had our first 10 titles in Nepalese, our first 20 titles in Vietnamese. Uh, the teams have now done over 1,700 original titles. Uh, we publish now in 37 languages. So a child in a, a Syrian refugee 
in Jordan or Lebanon will have access to a beautiful set of 20 Arabic language titles that Room to Read's authors and artists have created. Um, a child in rural Sri Lanka does not have to choose between a Sinhalese or Tamil. They can have access to both languages and learn both languages from a young person, which I think is some part of the key to peace and understanding in Sri Lanka. So I won't blather on about it. I love kids' books. Um, I, there's a few things I love more than children's books, so I could go on and on. But what's really been fun, I think, is just to see how much creativity Room to Read's unleashed through that local language publishing initiative. And super powerful also where, you know, in some circumstances, I'm sure there would be places that you would love to have another school or another library or, or so on. But, you know, due to circumstances, you know, out of your control, you can't reach those areas. But a book, a book can travel anywhere, right? You know, books, just one book, a few pages can change lives impactfully, you know, um, so, so profoundly also. So what an amazing, um, you know, impact. I, I would say that the knock-on impact of that will be felt for tens of, you know, tens of years, decades and decades and decades of good books just in circulation like that. You know, I remember reading Zach Yak. I've, I've got it at my place. I <laughs> uh, read it to my kids, which is awesome. So so maybe just changing gears here a little bit and, you know, just, um, you know, circling around to you now, um, you know, another chapter of your life, um, you know, um, uh, two kids, um, you know, what's, uh, what's on the, what's on the radar for you now, John, you know, where, where is it, uh, where is it you're spending your time as there new focuses going on, or is it still sort of a hundred percent passion in, in room to read every day? Yeah, well, no, the passion for room to read will, will hopefully, you know, pray to God, never diminish. Um, as long, you know, it's a, incredible group of people involved. It seems like it just gets better every every week, every month, every year. Uh, we have great people involved. So it's just the, the happiest times of my life are definitely when uh, I can actually be in a community and meet the kids, meet the parents, meet the teachers. And, and if you ask me the biggest thing I'm looking forward to once we have a vaccine for COVID and can travel again, yeah. it's really getting back to those places to meet the families, to meet the kids. Um, one thing that, you know, I think one of the things that's room to read is super strong at is really sticking to its knitting. You know, we don't want to try to be all things to all people. Yeah. If we can solve two basic issues of literacy and gender inequality, or to phrase it more positively, gender equality, if we can get to those, those are like the holy grails for room to read. So room to read staying very focused and saying, let's not stop till we reach 25 million, 30 million, 40 million kids. Our, our current leadership team, uh, Gita is our third generation CEO. She set a bolder goal than the founding team set. She set a goal now of, she and the team have set a goal of 40 million kids by 2025. So for the next five years, that's the North Star for Room to Read. Everyone's very clear that we're saluting that flag, 40 million kids by 2025. Yeah. And what's great is we got an awesome CEO, an awesome leadership team, an awesome board that I'm still a part of. And so it's really clear that that's where the organization's going. Yeah. For me personally, what's been really fun is that as more and more people have gotten involved in Room to Read, I've become, um, you know, a little more marginal, a little, uh, a little less busy with everything. Right? Every, every, every founder or co-founder is supposed to work themselves out of a job yes. by hiring, by, by recruiting, by delegating great people. I've always said, recruit, delegate, repeat, recruit, delegate, repeat. Um, so. As long as the organization will let me stay involved, I, I will definitely do so, and I'm happy to do so. But the best thing about it right now is that there's so many great people in so many great places that the organization's no longer 
dependent upon me, nor has it been for a long, long time. So with my free time, um, I am doing all kinds of fun things, basically helping uh, friends I trust and admire to launch their businesses, to get, to get a lot of new initiatives off the ground. So I'm a Myers-Briggs ENTJ. I'm a builder. Yeah. Right? I like to like, you know, take the hill and then take the next hill and then take the next hill. So I'm still living in Hong Kong. I'm on uh, year seven here. I'm about nine months away from getting permanent residency in Hong Kong, which uh, my wife Amy and I are very excited about. Uh, I'm working with a local group called Green Monday, which is a plant-based protein company, a uh, real powerhouse. If people check out greenmonday.org, uh, I think it's one of the best companies in Hong Kong. They're doing all kinds of things to basically take the green food area and actually make the food taste good mm. uh, because you're not going <laughs> to get, you're not going to get, you know, the 80% of the world to actually do plant-based products and plant-based eating unless it actually tastes good. Tastes good yeah. And these guys have a great, a great product called Omnipork, uh, which we're now every McDonald's in Hong Kong, you can get Omnipork sandwiches in the morning. Basically it's, it tastes like pork. It looks like pork. It just happens that it's a lot healthier, lower in saturated fats, lower in nitrates. And by the way, we didn't slaughter animals yeah. in order to have the product. So I'm not yet vegan, but I'm, I'm going much more flexitarian. So Green Monday is a bit of big interest to me. I'm working with my friends Nick and Oliver, who are co-founders of a private equity firm in Singapore called Asia Partners, which is doing a lot of investing in, in basically... Um, uh, young uh, but but rapidly growing tech companies that are working across the region. So I'm doing quite a bit in that area right now, which has been a lot of fun for me being back in uh, technology and just doing a few projects here and there to help friends who are launching businesses. And I'm not in the driver's seat in any of them, um, which is kind of fun in a way to be able to wake up in the morning and realize that nobody's necessarily dependent upon me. I'm not a CEO. I'm not a board chair, yep. uh, but I'm there for my friends and I'm, I'm working this kind of portfolio stage of my career right now. Yeah, yeah. And would you say, you know, just uh, cutting into that now, so you, this is kind of, you know, uh, marriage, you know, children of your own. Uh, are, you, are you finding you've settled into that rhythm yet or you're still kind of like the, the entrepreneurial adrenaline is in the veins and it takes a little bit to, yeah. to, to slow down? Like, as you know, I certainly feel that way, you know, with, with my family and kids. How, how are you working out that balance for you? Well, it's funny because because my wife Amy is also hyper energetic, and she's an entrepreneur. Um, she she worked at the Four Seasons here in Hong Kong for the first five years as their director of PR and marketing, but then left to start a wine business called Toast T O A S S T Toast.co is their website, um, and so she's always like in this entrepreneurial mode with her business. Uh, we are together um, convening a series of. Uh, of, of events, COVID's put it on hold a little bit, but a convening called Powered by Purpose, which I'd love to invite you to. It's a, it's a convening scheduled for the middle of 2021 in Hong Kong, awesome. bringing together 100 plus executives and entrepreneurs. And the only thing we're gonna talk about is businesses that are powered by purpose. Yeah, Businesses that basically believe you can pursue both profits and purpose simultaneously. So it's it's the future Atlassians of the world. And so Powered by Purpose is one of the one of the entrepreneurial gigs that Amy and I are doing together. Love it. Um, so no, I don't think the entrepreneurial energy ever wanes. I mean, I, 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 you know, obviously, you know, Orion, our son, named after the constellation of Orion. You know, he was born five months ago. Great to hang out with him. Love him. Um, but I, you know, I, I know, I know that the next 15, 20 years are going to be ones of incredible opportunities for growth of companies. And so I want him to be 
with me there, but I'm, I'm going to be, you know, Amy and I are hopefully going to be dragging Orion to go see <laughs> go meet scholarship girls in Cambodia and, and go to Green Monday events and just have entrepreneurship really be a family sport. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I love um, one of the things I love about the American culture um, is, you know, the embracing and uh, and the value it brings to the entrepreneurial world. It, it, it actually, you know, says it's a great thing. And, and, and uh, I, I love hearing that because that's the same thing we, we do with our kids. You know, we involve our children in our business. We have business conversations around um, with them. And, uh, you know, my 17-year-old son is only four months away from being able to buy his first investment property. And he's 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 been saving his own money and, and he's getting set for it. So, you know, I love those things. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, where's, where's he going to buy his property? Does he does he have an idea yet? Yeah, he wants to buy it in Brisbane, so just up the road from the Gold Coast where we live now. So um, he's, uh, oh, great. He's, he's got his eye on something up there. So I told him if he saves 50% of the first deposit, I'll be his partner in his first deal. And um, so he's going for it, which is, which is super cool. <laughs> And I love oh, that idea. Awesome. Yeah, I love that idea, you know, driven by purpose because um, I just redid the positive slogan profit for purpose um, um, as our driving next 10-year decade um, driving statement, which is, you know, uh, we, the business needs to be healthy. Um, it needs to make good profit, but we want to do something purposefully with that profit and Room to Read's part of that for sure. So, mate, uh, awesome. Well, please. Please, uh, please go on when you're on LinkedIn next, just type in the hashtag powered by purpose, because what Amy and I are doing now is when we find businesses that, that have that same mindset that, that, that say, we're not going to believe in this old fashioned dichotomy that purpose and profits are antithetical notions. Mm. And the whole idea we're doing now, and actually I did a post this week about the husband wife team in Germany uh, who actually are behind the successful Pfizer vaccine for the joint venture with their company, you know, and here's a couple who are Turkish immigrants to Germany. They devoted their lives to medical research. They're now billionaires, but they don't own a car. They ride their bikes to work. The day they got married, they literally left their wedding ceremony, went back to the laboratory to work because that's how dedicated they are. And so I put that on LinkedIn under powered by purpose and had something like five or 6,000 views in the first 72 hours. And we just love finding companies like that that are really finding a way to say, let's, 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 yes, be profitable. We have to be profitable or we can't survive. Yes. But let's not stop there. Let's be powered by, in the same way that you and your team approached us seven, eight, nine years ago to say every single year, positive real estate wants to support two or three or four room to read projects and know that when we make money, we're making it not just for ourselves, we're making it for the state of the world. We want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. In my mind, that's the future of business. And if people have not seen my third book, uh, if I can just do a quick plug, it's titled yeah, Purpose Incorporated, Turning Cause Into Your Competitive Advantage. And that book was full of case studies. Uh, I interviewed Mike and Scott at Atlassian, for example, were to say, let's look at a world where we're not facing that choice of purpose versus profits. Let's go for both simultaneously. Love it. Love it. Mate. Uh, you've got me. Uh, you've got me. Um, getting goosebumps right now. I love that. Um, you can count. Uh, you can count on us to be right there with you, waving the flag, cheering you on. <laughs> we'll be right in there. <laughs> well, uh, John, one of the things that um, I'd love to ask you, and, and part of the the podcast that I'm releasing is called the Wealth Faculty, and it's got a bit of a spin on on the the word faculty. Your personal and and uh, you know um, your physical, your mental, your your emotional faculties that you bring to life and 
and I'm pretty uh, I'm pretty sure uh, people will be observing the energy and zest you bring for life already with your faculties right now. Um, but can I ask you the question along the way? You, 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 your your career so far is extraordinary, and, and and you're only just getting started. I reckon. Well, you know, who are the people um, that you've relied on in your close circle as a faculty of advisors for you to sort of achieve? such amazing things um, with Room to Read and then achieving things, um, you know, now in your other pursuits, you know, like who was on your faculty to help you, you know, keep moving forward and make good decisions and, and uh, move in great directions? Who did you rely on? Um, well, I, I've, I have a really wonderful executive coach who's based out of Vancouver named Jeff Balin. And um, he's just, we've been working together for probably about 15 years. He actually is very interesting uh, coach in the sense that about 40 to 50% of his work is pro bono. So he, he makes his money off corporate executives, but then he gives a lot of his time to help uh, people in the social entrepreneurship arena. And he's actually, I've refer referred several up and coming social entrepreneurs to him who he coaches on a pro bono basis. So Jeff Balin was a really big influence. There's a guy, a uh, longtime partner at Goldman Sachs named Munir Sauter. Uh, in my second book, Creating Room to Read, I made Munir a character. And he was, he's definitely a character, the kind of guy that whenever you have a problem, he, he's the person you go to. Whenever you're trying to noodle something through, obviously you go to your girlfriends or wife, you know, you go to your partner first, but then you need to have other thought partners. And, um, you know, I, I refer to them as, uh, as, as coffee, as co coffee now friends. I, I have this one word thing, coffee now. Yeah. And coffee now is the kind of thing when you, when you text that friend and say, I need to meet you. It's, they're not going to say, how about next Tuesday, you know, I'm busy, or they're not going to say, I'll have my EA contact your EA. They'll respond immediately. Give me a time today, tomorrow, whatever it might be. Yeah. And I've got a friend here in Hong Kong, Ben Hap, uh, who's one of those one of those coffee now friends where you're trying to noodle something through. It could be an opportunity. It could be a horrible problem you're trying to figure out. And I'm really fortunate that around the world, um, as I travel, it's not any one person. It's not any small group of people. It's, it's oftentimes it's the room to read regional boards. We have a wonderful Aussie regional board. Um, and so when I'm in Sydney, I can sit down and have, you know, different conversations with different leaders and just learn a lot from them, what's happening locally, run opportunities through them, get advice from them. But I, uh, there's an old, there's an old saying that, um, you know, God gave us one mouth in two years. And yeah. so the thing we got to do is we got to spend a lot of time just asking, asking questions and listening. I, what I will say, the thing that that most annoys me in the world, when you sit down with somebody for an hour, and they talk about themselves the whole time, and they never ask questions. Yeah, uh, I always get suspicious uh, or skeptical of people who don't do appreciative inquiry, who don't ask questions, who don't just sit back and and learn. Yeah, that's of course ironic because I've been talking about myself for the last hour <laughs> <laughs> to be saying that now. So irony, irony fully noted. <laughs> no, it's fantastic, and you know uh, our world of. Uh, um, coaching property investors across Australia and New Zealand, you know, nine times out of 10, um, the idea that uh, listening twice as much as you talk um, is is certainly a, a, an absolute golden one, that's for sure. Um, as, yeah. As you, yeah. <laughs> well, and, and also too, I, I love I love that, um, you know, the correlation, you know, I, I've chatted with, you know, many people in the podcast and, you know, everybody that I've talked to in, in, in multiple walks of life has uh, a circle of influential, um, supportive, um, go-to people that they can 
like you said, coffee now. I love that one. I might sort of write that down and and uh, and put that on my friends um, uh, in my circle. Coffee now means right. We got to get together because you know uh, it's a team effort. Like you said, the the changing the world's not going to happen uh, by itself, and certainly doesn't matter how much we individually hope it will. It won't happen unless we take some action, right? Yeah, I, I like the one where you can you can pray all your um, as much as you like, but as you pray, you should move your feet because uh, that's how you that's how you get to where you want to go. But uh, John, it's been fantastic to have a chat today, and and uh, I want to maybe just um, ask you uh, one last question, which is one I ask uh, everyone that I bring onto the podcast: What is the true meaning of wealth to you, John Wood? Oh, I, I think the true meaning of wealth is when it allows us to have the flexibility and the freedom to live the life we want to live. And ideally, that's a life of service. Ideally, it's not a life of selfishness. Ideally, it's just that we, we, we give. Uh, there's the three T's, our time, our treasure, our talent. And so if, it's, if a young entrepreneur calls us and says, I read your book and I need to get your advice, no matter how busy we are, we should say yes. Mm. Uh, and it may not be that I can meet you this week or this month or do that phone call, but it, but it's, I think just being able to have that opportunity to give back to others. Uh, and if it's, if your friend's doing a marathon and, and is raising money for cancer research, uh, even if that's not your thing, you know, still give the, give, give, give her a hundred bucks because she's running a marathon for cancer research. Obviously it means a lot to her. So I just think if we, you know, the old adage to whom much is given, much is expected has been something I try to always keep in the back of my mind. You know, we won the lottery of life being born, you know, white guys to educated parents in rich countries. Yeah. You know, let's just face it. You and I have had a lot of breaks that we didn't earn, just that 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 total lottery of life. And so my life for the last 20 years since leaving Microsoft and my vow for the next 20, 30, 40, however long I'm privileged enough to be productive is going to be about that just about you know having fun with my friends building great businesses but never forgetting that when we have financial success or if we have information and we have knowledge to share we got to do it if not then then shame on us and i'll, I'll just maybe close with just a quick adage i mentioned my executive coach jeff balin and in my purpose incorporated book i tell an anecdote once upon a time of saying to jeff hey you've you've lived in nepal and you've studied buddhism um, you're Jewish and you've studied, you know, 5,000 plus years of, of, of knowledge and, and, and religious tradition. You've read so much. What's the secret to life? Is there a secret to life? And Jeff thought about it for a bit and he said, yeah, it's not a secret, but it's clear. He said, figure out what you want to say on your deathbed and work backwards from there. Mm. And if your life today is in alignment with what you want to say in your last days on earth, then don't freak out. Just keep on keeping on. If you're not in alignment, you got to start getting yourself in alignment. So my whole thing, maybe let's not say deathbed. It's so depressing. Let's just say when you're <laughs> when you're on your, your back porch and you're 85 years old and you got the blanket over you because you're cold and you're looking back on your life. <laughs> what do I want to say? I want to say that at least 100 million people on earth had a better life because room to read is part of their life when they were a young person. And hopefully those 100 million people have 200 million kids in their lives who are educated and 400 million grandchildren who are educated because it all starts with that person. And I would encourage anybody listening, please go to roomtoread.org. If you want to mail me directly, I'm john at johnjwood.com. 
I'll connect you with the people who can help make it happen because I don't want to turn this into a, uh, you know, a, a sales pitch, but Room to Read does not want to stop growing. Room to Read still wants to be a force for good in the world. And so I hope that there's other entrepreneurs out there, other individuals out there who'll be inspired, Jason, by the example you and your co-founders and your team have done of 17 schools supported so far, hopefully many more in the future. Yes. Uh, let's do this. 100 million kids in our lifetime. That's doable. I love it. I love it, John. Inspirational, inspirational, and, and really appreciate you spending some time today. And uh, and uh, uh, all the best with uh, with the next few little things. But I know Room to Read is going to go from strength to strength. You've yeah. set the foundation unbelievably, and, and uh, it's only up from here, I reckon. Well, my my pleasure. And next time, my friend, it's it's over a glass of wine oh. in, in, in somewhere in Australia. I'll, I'll hold you to that one. <laughs> Okay, great. Awesome, John. Thank you. Thank you. All the best. Hey, thanks for joining us on The Wealth Faculty. Hope you enjoyed. Make sure you subscribe. We're all good podcasts are found. You can find us there. And if you want to watch it, you can subscribe on YouTube, Positive Mentor TV. And until the next episode, take care. Bye for now.